Uh, I've looked at John. I started John. I was going to do it for 12 weeks during the lockdown, and I've been doing it for three years ever since. And I think there are only four sermons left. So good news. <laughs> and we're into Easter, uh, which is great. And um, each time I look at something, I see things I've never seen before and things that you've probably seen, but, but I'm a bit slow and things I've never seen before. And so it takes its time. But hopefully we will finish in, in about four sermons time. And then I'll go back into the Old Testament. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that people often ask on Alpha, and I think lots of Christians talk to me about is, is being able to hear God. And there's a spectrum. There is a group of people who are very, very comfortable in hearing God and who sense and hear God speak to them very, very regularly. And there are folks in our church for whom that's their experience and that may be your experience. And if that's your experience, that's fantastic. My experience is that you are a minority but the rest of us feel that there's something wrong with us because we can't hear God in that way. Then there's another group, a spectrum of, of those of us who, who perhaps hear God from time to time at significant moments, and then we move to a group of us who might feel we're not sure if we ever hear God. And uh, so long since I've been in, my microphone doesn't fit my head anymore. And uh, so there's a group of us who, who are never really sure. And then there's a group of us go away on this. I'm not sure that God can speak to us. And it's clear to me in Scripture that God does want to speak to us. He wants to guide us. And it's my belief that many of us are hearing God uh, even when we don't think or recognize that voice. And tonight's part of John is a familiar story but I want to, it, what struck me is this thing about recognizing God's voice. How do we know? And particularly in the place of difficulty, the place of pain, the place of anguish, when we might have lots of different thoughts, which of those thoughts might be from God? Is there any way of going through the maelstrom of thinking and go, well, that's God whispering? Because when things are difficult, there are lots of different things that come out. It may be that we have a sense of, oh, it's your fault, and we blame ourselves, and we, we, we're down on ourselves. And that may be the recall, recurring thought, and we're trying to work out, is, is God angry with us? Have we messed up? Sometimes in the midst of pain, our feeling is, if only... And if only I'd done this, if only this hadn't happened, if only that person hadn't done that. And so sometimes the feeling is of one of blame. And is, is, is God directing us to be angry with somebody else? Is God directing us to blame someone else? Is God trying to tell us to cheer up? Of all of these different emotions when life is difficult, and for all of us there are periods, if not seasons, if not every uh, week, moments when it's hard and we think lots of different things, and are we supposed to know which ones or how we might we know if God is speaking to us? If he's directing us to do something, how do we know if that is God? If he's that feeling that we should stop pull back, withdraw, hide. That feeling that we should give up. 
How do we know if any of times that might be from God? And the second question that this passage uh, brought out for me, which may not immediately appear to connect to that first question, how do we know what God is saying in, in the midst of trouble, is how do we know if we believe enough? And again, that's a question that people often ask me. How do I know if I've got enough faith? How do I know if I believe enough? So we're going to look at John uh, chapter 20, hearing Jesus in the midst of suffering. This is following on from my series ages ago. For some reason, I discovered that this sermon had dropped off the internet, and I put it back this morning. Uh, so you may think, well, why has that suddenly appeared? This is from Easter Sunday. And then the last time I preached, it never, because I uh, um, was, was called away and left things, I never actually posted it at all. So that's going up tomorrow, our last sermon. We were looking at the, the, the death of Jesus. And we ended that sermon with the story of Joseph uh, and of Nicodemus, who come and take the body of Jesus, and they bury it in, in Joseph's tomb. They bury Jesus. And we talked uh, about the, 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 the immense courage of these two guys to do that. And... Uh, we end chapter 19 uh, with Jesus uh, buried in the tomb. And uh, we're now going to look at chapter 20. Now, if you've done any look studying of the uh, Gospels, you may be aware that the different Gospel writers uh, have uh, different accounts of what happens. And um, lots of people have done lots of uh, attempts to harmonize them and to try and work out what happens in what order. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, I think I just want to leave us with the key thing is that these are really uh, genuine, I think. They're not faked accounts. Uh, they're just different people's perspectives who emphasize different things. There are ways of putting them all in order, uh, and you can find those on the internet. What you'll find is that there are different ways of putting them all in order. Um, for me, it doesn't matter, because they all agree on something, on a couple of things that are really key. And it's the things that they work and agree on that we know that's what definitely happened. If you ask 10 different people to describe today, fun day, you will get 10 different answers and you'll try and work out, well, when did we have the barbecue? And uh, what times were the band playing? And where was the bouncy castle? And people will describe it in different ways because they'll describe what was important to them doesn't mean any of it's untrue. It just means that uh, people are genuinely, in the four Gospels, describing different perspectives. But the key truths are that Jesus comes back. He's raised, and that he appears to the women first. But we're going to look at John's accounts. All of the Gospels have that. So that's the bit that we're absolutely... We know the whole thing happened. How it happened in what order, if you're interested to do, you can work that out. So we're going to look at John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now that's the way that John describes himself. That doesn't mean that he thought he was special or that he was more important than anyone else. It simply means that he knew he was loved. And that's a great way of describing, that's how his identity, that's a key thing at the moment, isn't it? What's our identity? The identity of Jesus, uh, of John, is he somebody who knew he was loved by Jesus. 
So John is not trying to make any point about anybody else. He's just saying, this is who I am. This is how he describes himself. So basically, Mary goes to the tomb. Uh, she sees a stone has rolled away. She immediately goes to get Simon Peter and John. And she says to them, they are, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where uh, they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. So John's, no, I'm a faster guy than Peter. I got there first. He likes us to know that. But uh, he's not as brave as Peter. Uh, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. This is where uh, we get the different characteristics. We now know that John was the faster runner, but we know that Peter was the braver. Peter goes in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb also first, just telling you guys, John, I got there first, but we'll leave it there. But he wants us to know that. Uh, but he does go inside, and it says he saw and believed. My problem is I always ask myself questions that none of the commentaries ever try to answer. So I inflict this on you, where I, I try and think about things that nobody else seems to answer. My question was, well, what did he believe? Because we know later on that they didn't really understand quite a lot of things. So what did he mean when he says he believed? We're not totally sure. Did he understand the entire message of Jesus? It seems from the next few bits that there were still things for them to learn. So I'm not sure that he fully understand everything. But he probably has a belief that Jesus was alive somehow. It's not a belief that can answer every question. It's just a belief, perhaps, that it's okay. And certainly, it would appear from the way John describes what belief is, that it was a decision that he knew he could serve and trust Jesus. He didn't understand everything that was going on, but he knew I'm, I'm going to keep on following, and somehow something has happened. So how do we know if we believe enough? We don't have to be able to articulate every single belief of Christianity. You don't have to be able to answer every theological question, because it's clear that at that moment, John couldn't. But because of what we know of God as we see in Jesus, perhaps we are able to say that we believe in his love and mercy, and therefore we believe he is to be loved and served. We believe that we mess up and that he is merciful. We believe that he is good and that his way of life that he calls us to is good. And we want to give our lives to him. Now, the disciples went back, in, uh, went back to where they were staying. Now, you guys, far more intelligent than me, I thought, it just shocked me. They went in, they looked in, and they didn't see anyone. Now, I don't think it's because they were, couldn't see them I think it's because they weren't there. 
they went into the tomb and there were no angels and Jesus wasn't there. And maybe you've looked at this before, but it just struck me. Well, why, God? I mean, after all, John got there first. He wants us to know that. He ran. And he goes in, and no, there's no Jesus or angel to speak to him. And so they leave. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white. Now, it's perfectly acceptable to say, well, they were there, it's just that John and Peter didn't see them, but I think it's easier to understand they weren't there, but now they were. Angels appear. They choose, I think, not to show themselves to Peter and John. But why might that be? It may be that they'd rushed off too quick. It may be that John says, well, he's already believed, and so they don't need that. But it seems from way all... Because this is the one thing that all the different accounts agree on. It seems that there is something intentional where God is saying, this isn't for you, uh, Peter. This isn't for you first, John. This is for the women. It seems that the message is entrusted specifically to them. And why does that matter? Because it's a very strange thing for the Bible to say. Because in that period of history, in that period of culture, uh, women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in a court case, in, in any dispute. It was the men that gave evidence. They were, uh, as, a, as a gender, overlooked and unlistened to. And it would have been very embarrassing for the New Testament writers to say, Peter, our great church leader, it was embarrassing enough for them to say that he denied Jesus three times and run away from him, but that God doesn't reveal himself to Peter, but he reveals himself first to the women is a strange thing. And that it seems that Jesus valued and deliberately chose these women, Mary in, this, in John's account, to be the messengers. So Mary stood outside crying, and as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been at one head and the other at the foot. And they asked the woman, why are you crying? She said, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now again, this is an odd thing, isn't it? Why? Does she not recognize Jesus? Uh, I've learned that when I'm out walking, uh, which I do a lot of with my dog in Sutton and Newhall or Sutton Park, I've learned that many people don't recognize me unless I take my hat off. 
I don't know why, my face, <laughs> but I have to take my hat off so that people can see who I am. But I don't imagine that Jesus was difficult to recognize. But she can't see him. In the midst of the anguish of his death and the anguish of a body being stolen or removed, she can't see Jesus. And I think there is a metaphor for us that in the moments of pain and difficulty, it's very hard to see Jesus. When everything is painful and not as we want or not as we expect, it's hard enough to hear God when everything's going well, but it's really hard to see him in the problems. It's really hard to see him in the difficulty. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now, the angels have just asked her that. He asks the same question, and he adds another one. And again, I thought, well, why does he ask the question that he knows the answer to? Because he's just told the angels. And he knows the answer anyway. Why does he say, why are you crying? It's not because he's an insensitive male who genuinely can't understand why a lady is crying. That might be how the rest of us males act, but for Jesus, that's not the case. I think he wants to enable her to express her feelings. He's giving permission for her to express confusion and anguish and perhaps anger and pain. He's saying, say it. Bring it out. Let it come out. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. She's given permission to say, This is really what's going on inside of me. I am cross, furious, hurt, damaged, fearful. Where is Jesus? Let me know where he is and I will get him. And those of us who are familiar with this passage know what he says. He says, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, teacher. She recognizes him because of the way he says Mary, it seems to me. So... Again, and forgive me if I'm over-imagining, but I just wanted to, well, what, how would he have said that name in a way that she knew it was Jesus? How is that any different to what, why are you crying? I, don't suppose, I, I can't imagine that he said, why are you crying in a strange, silly voice? It's the same voice, but there's something about saying her name that she goes, Jesus. So I like to think it might have been a few things. I like to think that it's the gentleness. He doesn't say stupid Mary. He doesn't affix a rebuke or a label or a caricature. Faithless Mary, doubting Mary. It's just Mary. 
And sometimes we're used to our names being attached to a label, maybe not literally, but in our minds we know that people say things and, and they, they, mean, uh, they mean something in the way they describe us that's hurtful or unkind. Or maybe that's the way we describe ourselves. I, how, we talk about identity, how we would describe, oh, I'm stupid, or I haven't got enough faith. His, I think, the way he says Mary is one of grace, not condemnation. It's, you're not wrong. You haven't done anything wrong, Mary. It's okay. It's gentleness, not anger. It's affirmation, not rebuke. There's something in the way God speaks to Mary and to us that is different from the way the world speaks to us. It's different from the way the messages inside our mind speaks to us. So recognizing the voice of Jesus, those inner thoughts, the inner thoughts that don't shut down expression of pain. In other words, God isn't the one that says, you can't say that, you can't feel that. God is the one who encourages, like the Psalms that we do in our, in our live streams, that so often are expressions of feelings that aren't literally the theological truth, but they're how people are feeling. Why have you abandoned me? Where are you, God? And so the voice of God within us is the voice that draws out what we feel, not the voice that says you're not allowed to feel that. Because when we express things, that's how God heals and, and transforms. He cannot change the anguish that's suppressed or denied. He changes the anguish that is voiced. So the voice of God within us is not the voice that says, how dare you say that. It's the voice that lets us say things to him. It's the voice that doesn't affix a label to us. Oh, Donald, you're stupid. Oh, Donald, why haven't you got more faith? Over, over the last four weeks of being away and, and dealing with lots of different things, good and bad, um, I, I've, my, my inner voice is one of guilt. I think, oh, I'm letting people down. I remember we did the... One of the things we early on in the live stream, and Kath asked me one of the questions of life, you know, what's the biggest issue for you? My biggest issue is I'm letting people down. And I have to learn that that's not God saying that. That's some voice that I've picked up over the years that says, Donald, you have to be perfect for everybody. And so uh, the voice within me that says you're letting people down, I have to recognize that's not God's voice. That's a label that's attached somewhere that I have to, to resist. So however we describe ourselves in a negative way, that's not God's voice. The voice of God is the voice that reveals love, not rejection. 
That's how he treats Mary. He's pulling her in, not pushing her away. It's mercy, not condemnation. So when we look at these ideas of saying, is God saying your fault? It only, God will only say to us it's your fault if he's going to help us feel clean, to confess and be released. And if we stay in a place of guilt and shame, that's not God. What God wants to do is to wash. So sometimes he does say, look, you've got it wrong. And it's done in such a way that we go, Lord, I'm sorry, and we have that burden removed. You may have different answers to this, but these, and these are not um, infallible. These are just thoughts. I don't think God ever says, if only. So when we get stuck in the pattern and the cycle of if only, if only, if only, I think God wants to release us. It's gone. It's happened. And he wants us to be clean. When, he, when we feel that voice of anger towards someone and they're to blame, sometimes that might be God saying, you need to stop blaming yourself. That which was done was wrong and done to you. But he says that in order that we might forgive. So the voice that says, they're to blame, now let go. Stop blaming yourself, but now let go of it. That's, that may be God. The voice that says they're to blame and blame them for the rest of your life isn't God. The voice that says cheer up uh, is only if it's a voice of hope, not a voice of rebuke. So I don't think God tends to say cheer up. But sometimes he gives hope and he shows us things that we can be thankful for. What about the voice that says, do this? Well, if it's wise, if it's biblical and it's not damaging, then that will be God. But note those three things. God doesn't tell us to do things that are foolish, unscriptural, or damage us or other people. What about withdraw? I withdrew for the last four weeks. And so sometimes God does say step back, but it's temporary. What about give up? Well, sometimes he says it's time to stop. But in the main, we're called to persevere, to overcome. Sometimes we're told to stop doing things that are damaging and, and wrong. And sometimes God leads us to a place of saying, now's the end. But I tend to start with the default position, and this may explain all the world's problems, of God's asked me to keep going. <laughs> so I'll keep going until it's really clear not to. I don't know if that's helpful or not. I don't want to close as we, we move towards the end. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Now, the commentaries have lots of different ideas as to what he means. Is that a literal let go of me or a spiritual? Do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending my father and your father to my God and your God. 
Notice he says, don't, what he's really saying is, don't stay here in this moment. You need to go and tell someone. And in that place of pain and anguish and then of comfort, it's so natural to say, let's stay here. Let's build a tent. Let's, build a, let's stay in this place. And God is constantly saying, this isn't it. Move on. We need to move on and we need to move out. And whatever experience of anguish and pain we have and whatever sense of God meeting with us in the suffering, he will say, and now we move. And now we go forward. We don't stay in that place. And so she goes and she shares her story despite the fact that she was a woman who was considered voiceless. And clearly all the disciples have decided this is what God was doing because they make it abundantly clear that they all needed to hear from the women. And so Jesus entrusts this message. And so there is perhaps for us a question as to whether we are willing to hear God speak through the people who are not the strongest, the most gifted, but to allow God to speak to us through the humble and the weak, the people who are overlooked and maybe the people we don't want to listen to. Joel's going to come back and lead us in celebration, but I want to lead us, leave us with a few questions to reflect on, and then in the time of praise and worship and celebration, we will allow ourselves uh, to process these four questions. So the first question is this, what are the wrong voices we are hearing in our suffering? What are the voices that come from others, from our own low self-esteem, from our own misconception about what, how, what spirituality looks like, from our own experience, perhaps, of pain or criticism, the voices of condemnation, the voices of uh, perhaps giving up. What are the voices we need to say? That's not the voice of Jesus. What are the messages that as we worship together, we perhaps need to allow them to be replaced by words of hope? And the second question is, is who are the people we're refusing to listen to? If we want to hear God, are there sections, churches, denominations, people we've said they, God can't speak through them? And then, as we talked about earlier, when it says that John believed, are we at a point of saying, I don't understand everything, but I believe you are loving and I want to serve you. And maybe I can't understand the answer to why this has happened and all the questions, but here I am. And are we able to say, I believe? I believe, God, that you are good and faithful and I want to serve you. I believe you're alive. I believe that something powerful has, has happened and it's touched my life and I don't understand all implications, but here I am. And that's part of what we'll express 
in worship together. And then the third question, last question is this, how are we to move on? How is God saying, okay, don't hold on to me now. Go, move forward. So let's pause for a moment or two and uh, reflect on those questions. Would you like to stand with me? We'll pray. Father, with all the millions of voices in our head, help us to hear your call of our name. Help us to hear mercy without condemnation. Help us to hear the simplicity of your call without the labels the world has attached to us. Will you guide us? Will you help us to move on and move out? We thank you for this amazing grace that calls us as we are, recognizing our fears and our frailty and our doubts and our questions and the things we've got wrong, and yet you put your Holy Spirit within us. And so, Lord, we do believe. We don't understand all that it involves, but we want to love and serve you. We offer ourselves again to you. Lift our eyes to your grace. Lift our eyes to your salvation. Lift our eyes to your mercy. Cleanse us from the dirt we've put upon ourselves and the dirt others have put on us. And by your amazing grace, will you come? and cleanse, and forgive, and renew, and empower, and equip, and send us out. Amazing grace, come upon us now, we pray. Amen.